blessed assurance. That doctrine is blessed. Indeed, the doctrine of the assurance of the believer, it's one that carries great import in the Protestant church because unlike the Roman Catholic church, our righteousness to get into heaven and have the assurance we're going there is not based on our works, our cooperation with sacraments and the infusing of grace into us so that we might work and achieve our own salvation. A Roman Catholic cannot have assurance of salvation because they never know if they've worked hard enough or not. In fact, to, to claim blessed assurance would seem from their system to be haughty and arrogant, that they would dare claim in some way that they think that they have achieved the righteousness of, of the great saints of ancient days. But we Protestants have blessed assurance because our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness is one that qualifies us instantly for the courts of heaven. It's the righteousness of another. It's an alien righteousness, as Luther said. It's a righteousness that's imputed or counted to our account, not one that we have lived out. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us, imputed to us, that we might stand perfect in the sight of God. Amen? Just listen to the confidence in Jesus' promise when he was speaking, giving people who were listening to his teaching and believing in him confidence. He said, and he underscored it, truly, truly. That means underscore this and believe this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's the Father, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. When you believe, you are already saved, and you should know that you are saved, because even faith itself has an assuring element in it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's confidence of things not seen, a conviction. Dr. Charles Ryrie succinctly defined Christian assurance this way. He wrote, assurance is the realization that a person possesses eternal life. Not hopes to get eternal life, but possesses eternal life. Parsons, in his helpful book called Assured by God, writes this, just as our Lord instills humility within our minds, so He establishes assurance within our hearts. Not only does the Lord conquer our rebellious hearts and make us surrender to Him as our King, He bestows upon us one of the most precious of all spiritual blessings in Christ, the assurance of salvation. The doctrine of the assurance of salvation travels hand in hand with the doctrine of eternal security. Since eternal life is never withdrawn by God, Every believer is to be assured that he or she is saved and saved forever, guaranteed a home in heaven. There are, however, a surprising number of believers who have doubts about their own salvation. And so added to faith, God gave another way to assure their hearts 
about salvation, a lesser known way, a way that I don't think is taught enough in evangelical churches. But it is explained also in an oft-neglected biblical text in the little letter of 1 John chapter 3, if you would open there, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 23. Let's read it and consider its contribution to this issue of the assurance of salvation. 1 John 3, 19 through 23. John is writing, and he says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before God in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. First John is a letter about love. It's a love letter. It's also a letter about truth. It has much to say also about confidence that we have in approaching God, confidence in our relationship to God. It's a book that talks a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit inside of the believer. It's a book that also talks about eternal life and who is it that has eternal life and what is that life like? If you took time to read the letter, you would see that a lot of it is against false teachers that were claiming to have a relationship with God in their spirit, in their inner life, but outwardly they practiced sin of every kind. And John has very simple theology. He basically calls them liars. He said, if you want to know who's actually righteous, they're the people that are living righteously. And if you want to know who's of the devil, just see who lives like the devil. It's a very simple theology. According to chapter 3... The truth is best expressed when people love one another. Love is is central to understanding truth. If you go and read chapter 4, you'll see that confidence in our lives that we're born of God comes when we have a love, a mature love. If you go to chapter 5, it says that eternal life is evidenced inside of a person by deeds of love. Indeed, the commandment of Christ, which is repeated in this epistle, is we are, we are to obey this commandment, and it is love one another. Believe in His Son and love one another. It makes everything in the Christian life so simple. Love is central to everything that John talks about in this First John epistle. This passage, this little section here, teaches us the benefits that believers receive when we are loving one another. That's right. Often we think of love as the obligation. You're going to tell us, Pastor, we need to love one another. Yeah, of course I'm going to tell you that's what the Bible says. But actually, this passage is not telling us to love one another, although it says in there there's the command. It's mostly talking about the benefits that love brings, not only to other people because of love, but boomerangs back to you. What are the benefits love? When you love others, what does that actually do to benefit you? And actually, there are two benefits that love brings to every Christian. The first benefit is love reassures your own heart. That's in verses 19 and 20. Love reassures your own heart. 
The second benefit is love gives you confidence when you come to God or when you have to approach God. It gives you confidence with God. That's verses 21 through 23. Every Christian, I don't know this for a fact, maybe I should say almost every Christian, but I think every Christian at some point has thoughts of self-condemnation, has doubts that arise in their minds. John wants us to know how ultimately to quell such a destructive and debilitating mindset, freeing us to enjoy peace with God and peace in our own hearts. And so, Let's look at the first benefit. First, love reassures our own heart. Would you look at verse 19? This is, this is interesting, and there's some difficult interpretive things in the passage, but I think it's really beneficial. Verse 19, we shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before God. John says there's a way to know for sure that we are of the truth a test that we are to take so that we will know. Now, to be of the truth in John's writings does not mean that you're saying truthful things with your lips. It's not talking about speaking the truth. We know when we're speaking truthfully and we know when we're telling a lie. We don't need any test for that. We already know that in our conscience. When John writes about the truth with a Greek article in front, he is describing a particular truth, the truth that comes from God, the truth of God's word, or you could boil it down and say the gospel about Jesus Christ. One who is of the truth then is one who is aligned with God's truth. He's someone who is born of the truth of God's word. He's someone who has accepted the truth into his life. In other words, he's a true Christian. Someone who's of the truth is a true Christian. If you were to take a survey in John's writings and study this phrase through, you would see it makes this point quite clear. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 32, Jesus said to some people that had started to follow him and professed faith in him, he said, if you continue in my word, that is, if you continue listening to my teachings, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The gospel, the teachings of Christ are the truth and it sets people free. If you were to go also in John's gospel to John 14 and verse 6, Jesus told Thomas, I am the way to the Father. Remember that? He said, I am the way and the what? The truth and the life. The article is used there. I am the truth. Jesus was not claiming that he spoke truthfully. Of course he did, but that's not his claim. He said, I am the everlasting truth of God embodied. When we come to the letter of John, also written by the same John, the Apostle John, that expression that he uses continues. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4, if you look back just one chapter, it says this, the one who says or the one who claims, I have come to know God and does not keep God's commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Obedience to God's commandments demonstrates whether the word of God is truly believed and is accepted in a person. And so John is saying that we can know we are Christians. We can know that we are of the truth by this test, by this. Now, of course, you have to ask by what does the by this mean in verse 19? What does it refer to? Sometimes when you read John's writings, you realize that you have to read forward to find out what he wrote next and figure out what the this is. But sometimes you have to read backwards and find out what the this is. In this case, if you look back to verses 17 and 18, we find the logical connection. 
John wrote, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide or remain in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, just saying that we love each other, in other words, but in deed and what? In truth. By loving one another in deed and truth, in tangible ways, in ways that we can actually see love is being practiced, we pass the test. And we know experientially that we are of the truth. That's the test. Now, just to ingrain this in you further, look back to verse 10. Back at verse 10, same chapter. There John gave the same test, and he gave it about love, but he kind of wrote it in reverse. If I could just summarize it, he says, the one who does not love his brother is not a child of God, and therefore not of the truth. The one who doesn't love his brother is not a child of God, so he is not of the truth. Being a child of God, loving and being of the truth, they all run in the same direction. They all run together. Look at verse 14. Again, it expresses the same test. Verse 14, he says, we know that we've passed out of death into life. He's talking about being spiritually saved, being spiritually born again, out of death into life because, now what you would expect it to say right here is because we said we believed in Jesus, right? That's what, it would, that's what you'd expect it to say. We know we've passed out of death into life because we believe in Jesus. And that would be a true answer. But it says, because we What? Love the brethren. Love the brethren. He who does not love, it doesn't say he's weak and an immature Christian. He says he abides, remains in death, spiritual death. Not even alive. There's no new birth there. There's no seed of God in him. The truth is not in him. Without true love, a person remains continually in spiritual death. That person has no eternal life. They have no Christ in their life. They are not a Christian. So love is very important as an indicator of the presence of saving faith and eternal life. John impresses upon us that demonstrating this kind of love is not an option. Please listen to that. It's not an option. Obviously, some Christians are more mature than others. Some Christians have more love than others. Some Christians have more faith than others. Some Christians seem to to serve and give and forgive more quickly and and, in such intensity that it's such an example to the rest of us. And it's obvious, too, that Christians still sin. We, We act selfishly at times. This is not asking for perfect love, perfected love. We wrestle with selfish habits, don't you? Do you have a selfish habit? Yes, you do. (laughs) Do you have at times an unforgiving spirit? That other person has wronged me so much, I just, ugh. Are you unkind with your tongue? You speak too quickly. You don't take into consideration how someone might be feeling and your words come out and they're ill-timed. Don't you do that? Of course, we all do. I do that. But John is saying, as sure as a flower opens up to the sun, so in a believer's life, there, there will be an emerging love that comes out of their life. There will be love that emerges. You watch them sooner or later, that love comes out. Of course, John is not writing about any kind of love. He's not talking about romantic love. I think you know that. Romantic love is common to the human race. That would hardly be an indication as to who's saved and not saved. 
There is the good feeling kind of love or the familial love. We call it a family kind of love where we love those in our family and feel good towards them and we love our friends. Often you can have deep, deep feelings of love towards a friend or a family. Pagans have that too. Did you know that? They feel very strongly about their families. Jesus actually said, if you love those who love you, what good is that? Even the pagans do that. That's nothing special. That doesn't indicate anything at all. No, this love is defined by Jesus back in verse 16. Would you glance back there? We know, or we figure out what love is. We know love by this. This time John's this is forward. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. There it is. (laughs) There's the love. You want to know the kind of love he's talking about that is an indication as to whether or not you have eternal life? There it is. We know love. We figured out love. We got the definition of love. Here's the right standard of love, that he laid down his life for us and we should lay down our lives for the brethren. Yes? That's what it says. That's agape love. You've heard of agape love, the Greek term, an active, voluntary, sacrificial, God-honoring, flowing out of the truth kind of love. Same kind of selfless love Jesus demonstrated to the utmost by humbling himself in in the most humiliating kind of way and doing that to save us. By demonstrating, demonstrating selfless love towards the brethren, we will know we are of the truth. Why? Why is that the case? That is the case, but why is that the case? Why does love in particular prove we are of the truth? Isn't our profession of faith in Jesus satisfactory proof? Isn't our attendance at church satisfactory proof? Isn't it satisfactory that we went and we got baptized? No. Love is the distinguishing mark of the true Christian. Christians are to be known by something that is innate in them, something that can't be phony, something that that, that cuts through all of the fog and shows that's genuine. And that's the distinguishing mark of heavenly love. You know, the NFL season kind of kicks off today. And some of us are going to be rooting for our team, and we're going to know what our team is by the jersey, yes? Burgundy and gold, that's what I'm looking for. (laughs) Others of you have other colors, and that's what you're looking for. How is a Christian known? What is the Christian's jersey? Is it saying, I love Jesus? No. It is showing love to the brethren. That's the jersey. Jesus said, by this all men will know you are disciples of mine if you, and here's the jersey, have what? Love towards one another. That's how they're gonna know. That's John 13, 34. Some people may ask or object, aren't there some Christians who mean well, they're just caught up in a selfish lifestyle? What about many of the youth in our churches who've professed Christ as their savior, but their parents and their friends would testify when you get home, they're totally selfish. Are they saved? No, they're not saved. They're not saved. Love and action is the true indication of a saved person. Many of you have already seen in our own church here, men who say they're saved seem to know an awful lot about theology, defend the Bible, argue minutia of doctrine. But they live in constant conflict with others. They treat brothers harshly. They're argumentative, even over small things. That absence of love exposes them. They're phony. They're not true. 
They used the Bible as a weapon to gain an advantage over other people. But they missed the entire message of the cross of Jesus. What is it? If you want to be a believer in Jesus, pick up your cross, die to yourself, and live for his will following him, right? I get very concerned, and I know the other elders do as well, when we see members of the church refusing, I have to say it that way, refusing Sunday after Sunday after hearing God's word to get involved in the lives of other believers. If you're not involved in the lives of other believers, here in the church is the primary place you're supposed to show it, how can you say that you have the love of God inside of you? That's the question John asked. If you're always on the outskirts, you just kind of attend and you hear the word preach, but you don't love the brethren, how is it that you can say you have eternal life inside of you? If you don't help your brothers, if your heart is not moved, if you're not involved somewhere, how can you claim you know God? God told you to love them, us. You can't be uninvolved and be loving. It's impossible. Can you imagine Jesus sitting in heaven and saying, I love all of you down on earth. But you know what? That's going to be a hassle coming down there. I mean, I love God. I'm up here singing the hallelujahs and everything. But if I come down there, that's going to have to be, I'm going to have to be a baby and grow up. And the Romans are cruel. I don't want to get messed up with all that stuff. So I'll just attend the hallelujah courses up above. I love singing the songs. That's what some of you are like. How is it you can say eternal life is in your, your hearts? Listen, for those who don't love, their hearts will do what verse 20 says. Look at it. Condemn them. The heart is that inner faculty God gave to you. It's inside of you. It thinks. But it also keeps tab on your behavior. John uses the word cardia, heart here, in a very particular sense. He means what we would say, the conscience. Because he writes of the heart is, that is assuring you or the heart is condemning you. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul assigns these two roles to the conscience. Speaking of Gentiles and how they live before God, it says their conscience bears them witness and their thoughts alternately accuse or else defend them. That's the conscience. Conscience is, is, is defending their action inside of them or accusing them with their actions. The testimony of a person's heart against himself cannot be ignored. Your heart resonates, reverberates throughout your whole being. There's no way that if at the center there's a problem and there's something that's alarming itself, it's going to reverberate through the rest of your life. The Supreme Court is in the news again. Hearings going on in Washington. Feelings about the Supreme Court run very high, if you haven't noticed, because the ruling of those nine people has incredible lasting consequences for a nation, doesn't it? The conscience is being pictured here as a judge that has lasting consequences. It rules on your motives. It rules on your morality. It rules on your selfishness or your giving. When a person does wrong or when a person refuses to get involved and refuses to do right, the inner conscience accuses that person and says, you know, you're not really, you're not really loving. 
In, in such a condition, a believer cannot find and experience peace. The ruling of the conscience stands. The ruling of the conscience affects even your physical body. But when you do what is right, when your heart is soft and tender and melts and you lower your pride and you start working and living for the benefit of other people, forgetting about you first, your heart commends you and peace comes and joy comes and life becomes wonderful. Thank God for our conscience. It's a wonderful thing. Our conscience keeps us out of a lot of trouble. Our conscience guides us in the way that we ought to go. You know, wherever you, whenever you're in a place and you think you're going to get away with something, I remember we were in a hotel room once and it had bad movies and it said, hey, there's no record of your selections of these movies that will be kept by the hotel. And you know what they're saying. They're saying, we know this is wrong and you know this is wrong, but we're going to make sure nobody else knows about it. Well, they're wrong. I'm going to know about it. And God is going to know about it. Every action that I do, two people always know. Me and God. And I can pretend I don't know. I'll just bury it down there. But the conscience is just that thing that just won't let you keep lying. I guess there's some people that have lied so much that as they get older, they don't even hear their conscience anymore. I mean, they shot, it's full of holes. It doesn't work anymore. But if you're younger, if you still have a conscience, thank God for that. That's God-given that you end up not in hell. Whatever you do, you do in the presence of two witnesses, your conscience and God. I'll tell you what, a bothered conscience is a most disturbing thing. Wouldn't you agree? It's so unsettling. People try to fight against their own conscience. That's like being irritated at the smoke detector, right? I'm just gonna take it out, just pull it out, smash it, get a good night's sleep. Yeah, and you might die tonight too. Because you won't know. The smoke will be in your house and uh, you won't know. Get smoke inhalation and then get burned. Ignoring or suppressing the conscience results in disaster. It's a God-given alarm system to keep you from harmful decisions. What is the solution then when our heart's alarm goes off and our heart is self-condemning? John teaches us in verse 19, not only does love convince us that we are of the truth, it also assures our own heart. It assures our heart so well. Look at verse 20. It revealed, here's the scope. In whatever our heart condemns us. You're saying, you're kidding me. If I practice love, no matter whenever my heart wants to start condemning me because I'm practicing love, it will reassure in all those situations my full heart. That's what it says. In whatever your heart condemns us. If your heart ever wants to start condemning you, that practice of love silences it. The practice of love blankets all our doubts with assurance. The practice of love is the conscience's best friend. According to chapter 13 and verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. If you've done no wrong to the neighbor, your conscience will not be bothered. It does not matter what your heart was saying to you, it doesn't matter what bad thoughts you had of yourself, what doubts of your salvation are plaguing you, there is a way to fully assure that ever-present watching conscience. And it's this, get up off your couch, get out of bed, turn off your game console, quit playing all of your games and living for yourself, quit moping around the house and doing nothing, and go out and love the brethren. God's love active in your life will reveal something inside of you and dispel your doubts. 
Yes, the promise of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 is still true. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let me repeat that. No condemnation for those who are in what? Christ Jesus, right? That's true. Based on the promise of God, my condemning heart should read that and be silent. But the Apostle John is going further than that form of assurance. He's pressing the matter of assurance further and more experiential. God knows that the heart can still have doubts even after reading a great promise like that from God in the Bible because those promises only apply to believers in Christ. They don't answer that lingering question, troublesome question, am I a believer in Christ? Am I actually a believer? Sure, the promise in Scripture affirms that those who believe are saved. There's no hell for them. There's no fiery judgment of any kind. But am I one of those believers? And some even wonder, am I one of the elect? John presents the simple yet profound solution. If you have doubts, God's love, God's love entering into you and coming out through you to others, when you see that, your heart will be assured you're a child of God. I wish that counselors and parents and teachers would listen to this form of assurance more carefully and understand this is part of biblical teaching as well. Its applications are wide, immensely useful to the body of Christ. John does not say if you want to be assured of your salvation, look back to your conversion date and remember what happened on that conversion date. John does not say, look back to the day you walked the aisle. Do you remember that church? I know it's been burned down since then, but it was there, and remember it. Or the time you prayed that prayer, or you signed your name in that little evangelistic booklet. Where did I put that anyways? Oh, there it is. Oh, yep, my name's still in there. I must be saved. Scripture never speaks of gaining assurance of your salvation that way. Instead, experiential assurance comes when love flows out of your heart in tangible ways and does something for other people because you know, I couldn't possibly love somebody like that. Your conscience already knows the kind of person you are. You are a selfish brute. That's what it says. So if there's love that comes out to another, that has to have some other source. This is not works salvation. This is works demonstrating actual salvation. And the work is love. We chose the theme of love for our Gamma Conference this year in part because of love's importance, but also because of all of the false teaching about love. If there's lots of false teaching about love and people think that they're loving, then that's going to deceive them into thinking that kind of a love reassures them that they're really of God. When they're not, there are all kinds of Pharisees and hypocrites who are outside of the church of Jesus thinking that they live just as moral lives as churchgoers and are filled with love and they call it things like tolerance and this is not true. We all need to know what true love is from God and make sure we're demonstrating it and know how vital it is to the whole congregation. See, not all inner self-condemnation comes from Satan, not all of it. Your heart knows you also. Your heart won't let you fake the Christian life even while your face allows you to do it. It yearns, your heart yearns for you to know the fullness of the life of Christ. 
I came that my sheep might have life and have it, what? Abundantly. But your selfish pride, your looking out for number one, it blocks the road. You can't, you can't get through to it. Love is irreplaceable in the process of assurance. Listen, God offers no peace of mind and no assurance if you're not loving your family at home and you're not loving your brothers and sisters here in church. Parents, when children constantly fight and argue and bicker and compete with each other and seem to just live in jealousy and envy of one another, it's no wonder they struggle with whether or not they're saved or not. That's the indication telling you they haven't repented so as to lower themselves, follow Christ, and begin to love others. If you wrestle with that inner voice of accusation, silence it with love. Love that lowers itself first to meet the needs of others. I don't have time for them, make time. I don't care about them, ask God to mold your heart. I don't have time to be involved, find time. Love. Love is not something to put off till later. We can all slip into frightfully selfish living. I'm glad there's no thought above my head. Ah, oh, so that's what Pastor Leak was thinking. Yeah, I thought so. We can focus on the big, giant, ugly I with a capital I. Self with a capital S. But if you persist in that, you persist in being proud and selfish, even though you may be a true Christian struggling with your own sin, you're still going to have doubts. Because people can be genuinely saved and have doubts. And they have doubts because they look at their life and they see big, ugly S, self. You're going to lose, not your salvation, but you're going to lose the assurance and confidence of your salvation. That's true in marriage. Because you're supposed to have love in marriage. When you don't show it there, that's a place where it's really going to resonate in your conscience. Men, when you don't love your wives, it even hinders your prayers. Now, there's more to this. Notice in verse 20, it says, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. We all know that God is greater than we are. We know that God knows all things there. But there's a little bit of a debate as to why John wrote that right here. What does this have to do with the whole argument? And there are two interpretations that are kind of opposite one another that have been advanced over the years. Most of the modern commentators and, and the modern translations kind of indicate that this, this uh, is a word of comfort that is meant to us. It means something like this. Don't worry if your heart condemns you for living selfishly when you don't love. God knows what you really intended to do, and he's going to forgive you anyways. kind of means something like that. In other words, you, you can be too hard on yourself, but God is more gracious and God is more merciful. That interpretation would turn what John just wrote in verse 19 completely on its head, for it would be saying that your practice of love actually doesn't matter at all. In fact, such an interpretation would give credence to the very claim of the false teachers John is writing against in this letter who are claiming to have a relationship with God even though they live sinful and unloving lives. That's one of the reasons, if you go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 9, John wrote, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. In other words, he's never been in the light. He never learned to love. Don't listen to his words. Don't take his claim as true. Watch his life. 
People may claim to know God, may claim to be in the light, may be claimed to be enlightened by God, but the evidence is obedience to the commandments and loving one another. So I go with the second interpretation of this, and it's found in mostly the the older commentators. John is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing that if we cannot pass the evaluation of our own conscience, we know that God will be aware of our failure to love even more because his knowledge is greater than our knowledge. Even what our heart knows about us, he knows even more. He knows everything. In other words, this would be similar to what the Apostle Paul wrote about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. He, he wrote there to the Corinthians, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. He was saying basically my conscience is clear. I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. I'm not acquitted of my wrongs. But the one who examines me is who? The Lord. said, right now my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I haven't done something wrong. Paul knew that. The greater evaluation of my life is the Lord. Only when he acquits me am I acquitted. And so that's what he's saying. Rather than diminishing love's importance, John here is magnifying the importance of love. God will know if you are not loving, even if your own heart doesn't know. That evaluation of your life will be final and flawless. So how beautiful love is to reassure our hearts before God. This leads us with that thought right into the second benefit of love. Not only does love reassure your own heart, but secondly, love also gives you confidence with God. Love gives you confidence with God. That's in verse 21. If you'd look at verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us. So we've passed that, right? Our our heart has been reassured by love. If our heart does not condemn us, guess what we get now? Guess what the next benefit is? We have confidence before God. I could talk to some of you and say, do you have confidence before God? And some of you would say a little. The first step is to assure our hearts with love. Once that is done, then we can come boldly into the presence of God and have confidence before Him. And this is an even, I think, an even greater benefit of love. Just as love is irreplaceable to assure our own hearts, so love is irreplaceable to give us confidence in God's presence. What does he mean by that, before God? It could mean before God now as we're here down on earth and we're praying and we know we're in the presence of God and we're living our lives in the presence of God, and from that we pray, and we have confidence in our prayers before God. It could also mean, and relate back to the end of chapter 2 and verse 28, where it talked about Christ that is coming, that we will not shrink back in shame at his coming. People who are doing the will of God, they're waiting for Christ to come. We're doing your will, come. But those who know they're living for themselves, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, when Christ comes, it's gonna be trouble for me. That's right. You're going to shrink away in shame from him. When he comes in all of his glory, the light will shine on you and all the ugly will be exposed. And so you shrink away from that. And that's what his glory will reveal. You know, we can't actually see our faith, but we can see faith working itself into expressions of love. We can see that. Paul put it this way in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It doesn't matter you Jew or Gentile. It doesn't mean anything. But faith, working through love. Not a barren faith, but a faith that works through love. We're saved 
by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone, Luther said. It always works in what? Love. Always works itself out in what? Love. That's so crucial. That doctrine is so crucial. It's a doctrine, but it's a life too. Our confidence with God is extended to the area of prayer. You can see in verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from God because we keep God's commandments or Christ's commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Wow, wow. We receive what we ask in prayer. Why? Because we're doing what he's pleased with. (laughs) God listens to those that are obeying him. God answers the prayers of those who are doing what he commanded. It's pretty simple. And what, what is pleasing in God's sight? It says right here, keeping his commandments. Some people think that living a life to be obedient towards Christ is legalism. No, it's not. It's called faithfulness. If you don't want to even hear the commandments, don't bother me with the commandments of God. I just love the grace of God. But don't, don't worry me with the commandments of God. That's all that legalistic kind of Christianity. I don't want any of that. No, what does it say right there? It says you're going to do what God wants you to do if you keep his commandments. Pretty clear there, isn't it? And by the way, what are his commandments? Well, he says it next in verse 23. Look at it. And this is his commandment. Now, you're going to have to look forward now, right? Now, I love this because, you know, if you feel like I I can't understand the Bible too well, he lays everything out so easily, right? And this is his commandment. So you're not there scratching your head and wondering what is his commandment. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There it is. Await. And then there's an and. And what? Love one another. Uh Uh-oh. That's two commands. (laughs) No, that's one command. When you believe in the name of Jesus Christ and all that name stands for, you're believing in him as Lord, King, and teacher, and he taught you and he commanded you, love one another. It's the same command. There's no such thing as believing in Christ. And not loving. When you love, confidence swells up inside of you. God accepts my prayers. Because you know you're doing the love that pleases him. When you love others, you just sense that concern in your spirit. You know that love comes from God. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, love is from God. On the other hand, an absence of love, that hinders prayer. Remember what James taught us, James 4, 3. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. That's why you're not getting anything. Remember Peter warned the husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7, if your prayers seem to be hindered, look at the way you're treating your wife. Is it gentle? Is it caring? Well, if it's not, it's not rocket science, guys. Many Christians have weak prayer lives because they have... Weak love. Their prayers reflect the comforts and the ease they crave, the material blessings that they covet, the pleasant experiences they want to check off their bucket list while avoiding the hard work, the menial tasks, the humble action that love demands of the saints. You know you can be religious and have cold hearts. Cold hearts spit out sickly prayers. Hearts aglow with divine love that have repented of their own selfishness and said, God, teach me. Boy, they 
burn with the furnace of God's love and it causes all that hot air, all that hot kind of faith that makes a prayer rise unto God quickly. In verse 23, John brings us to what has been his underlying thought actually throughout the chapter, and that is the intimate relationship between love and faith. The intimate relationship between love and faith. Both of the benefits that love brings to us are true because saving faith and love are inseparably bound. In verse 23, John connects them as one commandment. This is his commandment, singular, but the commandment is that we believe and that we love, too. Believe in the name of God's Son. Love one another. That's only one command. True faith is latching your confidence onto Christ and offering yourself to serve him by loving others. So God's truth, listen to this, God's truth and God's love are not opposites. They are eternally married. They enjoy each other. They get along just fine. All the attempts of postmoderns to separate truth from love fail. For when faith in the truth is reduced, so is love. The love that they say they're practicing out there in the world is not love. But when love is reduced, listen to this, when love is reduced, the truth also is not very well understood. Truth and love need each other. What kind of a love is it that does not do what is best for the other person? Even speaking the hard things to them, that is a selfish and sinful lifestyle. Don't do it. It leads to destruction. That's love. When you just applaud the lifestyle and say, oh, we need to accept one another, that's not love. That's encouraging them to die. What kind of a truth is it that makes men proud and selfish and argumentative? That's not God's truth. There is no such thing as right belief without right practice. Nor is the practice of love ever right without right belief and truth prompting it. Those in the world who claim to love and be tolerant and get along but don't believe in Jesus as Lord are just walking hypocrites. There's nothing to admire about their lives. They demonstrate only a lying kind of love, a deceptive kind of love, not true love, one that will destroy one that will tear down, both in this life and in the next. It's not God's love. God's love builds up. Beloved, the command to reassure our hearts and to give you confidence before God in prayer and when the Lord returns is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's just beautiful about the command to love, that it is there to benefit you. The command to love, amazing how God can do that. He gives us a command that sounds like it's all meant to just help us help other people. And then we're like, well, what about me? But if you love other people, don't you get it? God takes care of you. He gives you the best life that you can have in this world. A life of joy and peace. Do you remember what the fruit of the Spirit is? Not the fruits, the fruit, singular. Love, what's the next one? Joy, what's the next one? Peace. How do you get joy and peace? It's already given to you in the list. First, love. Why don't I have joy and peace? You didn't love. Or you loved selfishly, which wasn't love. 
The beautiful thing about God's commandment is it's so wise. God says his commandment is not burdensome. How some of you might have heard this today is, I have a busy life. I have so many things to take care of. And now I just feel guilty I'm not loving. And I have more to do. You heard it all wrong. God says in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They lift you up. They give you energy. They fill you out. You haven't figured that out yet. That's the beautiful thing about his command to love. Don't lie to yourself. Don't don't let that lie come into you. Oh my goodness, I have to love other people. I can't believe it. Wow, one more thing to do in life. Heaping on the guilt, isn't he? You can't lose with love. You can't. Don't listen to the lie of Satan. Please listen to that. Evaluate your hearts. Evaluate what you're doing with your life. Where is your giving? Where is your service? Where is your prayers for others? Has it grown cold? Stir it up. Ask the Holy Spirit to work that in you. Maybe you found out by listening to this, you're not saved. You've never been saved. You've been selfish all the way through. You thought the whole setup was for you. Sorry, my friend. It's not about you. It's about Christ and his glory and loving other people. It's counterintuitive to you right now. It might not seem like wisdom, but it is. God will change you. You have to repent. Turn to Christ. Say, Christ, I'm a sinner. I've been living for myself. I'm all talk. I'm no walk. Change me. May God work that kind of love further and further into our congregation that we may love one another genuinely. Yes, Jesus knew what was best for us when he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as, just as I have loved you. God, we understand that your love is perfect and ours is not, but we would pray that you would warm our hearts and reassure our minds and our consciences that we are your children by an intense focus upon your love and love for one another. Thank you, Father, for those who set such good examples of selfless love, who act not just for themselves but for others and don't care whether or not they're ever acclaimed or not. Thank you for them. Thank you for this precious gift of love that brings us joy and allows us to participate in your peace. We bless you for it, Lord God. And we've interceded for your people as we've heard your word. Help us, Father, to to obey your commandment and to receive these benefits and blessings in our minds and hearts. For Christ's sake, the building up of his church, we have heard your word and we have prayed, amen.